So I heard a story the other, the other day of a, a little boy who was doing some serious thinking one day, and he came to his dad and he said, Dad, how did this whole thing happen? How did the human race come into existence? You know, how, how, how were we all born? And his dad said, well, son, the, the Bible says that God created Adam, and then he created Eve, and they had children, and they had children, and they their children had children, and so on and so forth, and we just, we came to be this great mass of humanity that we are today. Kid said, okay. So, wasn't fully satisfied and went and talked to his mom and said, Mom, how, how did this whole human race thing come into, into, into being? And she said, well, son, you know, there was a time when uh, a little critter crawled out of a swamp and grew legs and evolved and eventually became primates. And, you know, our ancestors are, are monkeys, they're primates. And, you know, so that's kind of how things evolved. And so then he was really puzzled. He went back to dad. And he said, dad, what gives? You know, you said this, mom said that. And dad said, son, your mother was just talking about her side of the family. And that has nothing to do with what I want to say this morning, but I thought I should share the story. It was too good. We are in a series on the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the church in Rome, and the title of that series is The Gospel of God Concerning His Son. We are in Romans chapter 6, 1 through 7 today. Our title is set for a short passage. I'm so glad I chose to do this. I almost did more than verses 1 through 7, and I'm so glad I didn't because this is just packed. So let's stand and let's read this together as is our custom. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. This is God's word. You may be seated. Last week I told you to open your Bibles and put your thinking caps on, and the same is true today. This is not a light passage, and so I hope you have a Bible open in front of you, whether it's a paper Bible or an electronic Bible, um, so that you can be following along. Chapters... 1 through 5, which we have just completed, explain what God has accomplished, past tense, what God has accomplished for us in the gospel. What God has accomplished for us in the gospel. And the key word that we've been talking about there is the word justification, that we're justified by faith alone, in Christ alone. That when we transfer our trust, and I've been using that phrase, and I love that phrase, the transfer of trust from our own morality, our own 
ethics, our own good works, our own religion, to what Christ accomplished at the cross, and we put our faith in Christ, the Bible says we are justified, that God takes that faith and he credits that to us as righteousness. He imputes his righteousness to us by a judicial decision, a judicial verdict that that can't be revoked, that can't be appealed. Justified. And and as I've shared with you, one of the ways of remembering that we're justified is to is this that when when my sins are forgiven, it's just as if I'd never sinned. So we stand guiltless before the Lord. And then chapters 6 to 8 now, which we're entering into today, we're, we're at a pivot point. Chapters 6 to 8 tell us what God will accomplish in us through the gospel. What God will accomplish in us through the gospel. And the key word there is sanctification. Sanctification. Sanctification has two basic ideas. One is that that uh, we are set apart to a holy purpose. That we, that we now belong to God through Christ. We're a part of the family of God. We belong to Him. He sets us apart as His own possession. And then the other part of the definition is that having been justified, having been included in the family of God we now are in a process of growing towards Christ-likeness. We're, we're being progressively conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And so we're, spiritual growth is another phrase we use there, sanctification. Well, this gospel that we've been talking about of received righteousness... as opposed to earned righteousness, is a radical message. And remember, we use that, that image of the, the faith is the hand of the heart. It's the, the hand that's reaching out to God and receiving from him what he has to give. This gospel of received righteousness tells us that our moral efforts contribute nothing at all to our salvation. Doesn't matter how moral you are, matters not towards your salvation. The Bible never says your good works are credited to you as righteousness. Never says that. Instead, it says our righteousness is like filthy rags. It's it's worth nothing. And I, and you know we talked about that thought of you know looking at someone who's really a moral person, and we say, well, I may, they'd make such a great Christian. Well, maybe not because they're trusting in their morality. They think they're okay. You know, on balance, they're better than the other guy. And so, you know, if God grades on a curve, which he doesn't, but if he did, maybe they'd, maybe they'd work out okay. Maybe it'd be all right for them. So you don't have to think too long before coming to the realization that this message of received righteousness, of received justification, is unique among all of the world's religion and, religions and philosophies. There's no other message like it in all the world. And, and Paul knows from experience that a question then immediately arises. It immediately comes up in any discussion of the gospel. And the question is something like this. If our good deeds 
are worthless in terms of earning our salvation, then why be good at all? There's an old pastoral joke, you know, that says pastors are paid to be good, everybody else is good for nothing. Um, that's not exactly this. <laughs> but if our, if our good deeds really are worthless to earning our salvation, why be good at all? Why pay any heed to biblical morality? such as what's found in the Ten Commandments or the the greater, what we call the Law of Moses. If the gospel says we're saved by grace, not, not by a good life, doesn't that message leave the door wide open to an immoral lifestyle? Paul, in this passage, is once again employing a teaching method that involves carrying on an argument against a kind of imaginary opponent, as he's done already several times in this letter. And the argument arises from what Paul said in chapter 5, verse 20, which we saw last week, where Paul said, where sin abounded, grace superabounded. And the concept that that no matter how great your sin, God's grace superabounds to cover it. So at the heart of the debate is this central question. If where sin increases, grace superabounds, well, why not just persist in sin? makes some certain sense. What shall we say then, verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? So imagine a, a dialogue that unfolds like something like this. The imaginary opponent, we'll call him the objector, says, Paul, you've just said that God's grace is great enough to provide forgiveness for every sin. And Paul replies, yes, that is so. So the objector comes back and says, well, you are in fact saying then that God's grace is the most wonderful thing in the world. And Paul says, yep, that's also true. You got it. The objector thinks for a moment and says, well, if that's so, then let's go on sinning. The more we sin, the more grace will abound. Sin doesn't matter because God will forgive anyway. In fact, we might even go further and say that sin is really a great thing because it gives opportunity for God's grace to be demonstrated. The conclusion of your argument, Paul, is that sin produces a superabundance of grace. Therefore, sin is bound to be a good thing because it just produces more of the greatest thing in the world. What Paul seems to be driving at in this passage, I I think, is an attempt to engage the corollary question, is there anything in the gospel message of received righteousness that prompts a believer, you and I, to change the sinful patterns in our lives? And if so, how does it do it? How does it accomplish that? Won't the message just encourage us to keep on sinning so that the grace of God in Jesus Christ will just keep on covering our sin? And Paul gives the very short and simple initial answer, which I'm just going to call this morning the moral objection, is found in verse 2, where he says, By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it. Uh, 
one of the things that I do sometimes when I when I see a, an expression that that looks packed to me in, in the Bible, I'll, I'll I'll go and look at how other translators have rendered it. And when you do, here, here are some that you'll find in this case. May it never be. God forbid. No, not at all. Certainly not. That's unthinkable. What a ghastly thought. So Paul, go, Paul goes on in verse 2, and he asks the corresponding question that goes to the heart of the matter. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? And so Paul then begins his fuller answer with the phrase, Do you not know? Do you not know? And he's essentially asserting, I think, that a person would only ask that question, why not continue in sin so the grace will abound, if they fundamentally misunderstood the teaching of justification by grace through faith. So in verse 3, Paul begins to provide what we'll call this morning the missing information, the moral objection, the missing information. Do you not know? Do you not know? So the first one, which we've already seen, is this, that you, do you not know that you died to sin? You died. Notice, first of all, that Paul's already described believers there in verse 2 as we who died to sin. That's a, a fact about us. In verse 3, Paul takes it one step further and he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So the question that, that Paul's engaging here in, 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 in starting with that phrase, do you not know, is, is the question, what does dying to sin mean? So let's begin by establishing five things it doesn't mean. <laughs> Ways that Christians have interpreted these, and, and I'm going to split some hairs here, but um, stay with me if you will. Uh, it is wrong or inadequate to say any of the following five things. Number one, that died to sin means that we no longer want to sin, or that sin has no more power or influence over us. And we have to call this what it is, false. False, right? Because you still want to sin, don't you? Say yes. Right, you do. Some of you were afraid to answer that question in church, and you're a liar, so... You're still sinning, see? So we can't say that we no longer want to sin when we're Christians. We do. And we do sin. We can't say that sin has no more power or influence over us. If that were the true meaning, Paul would not have to say what he will say in verses 12 to 14 of this same chapter, which we'll see next week, where he says, Let not sin therefore reign, rule in your mortal body to make, make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. Where there's no law, sin is not imputed. So if a Christian doesn't want to sin, why would you need to urge him not to sin, right? 
Additionally, seven, chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, Paul says very clearly that a Christian still has sinful desires. He wrote there, I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So there's that. Secondly, it's wrong or inadequate to say that died to sin means we no longer ought to sin, that sin is now appropriate for the, uh, inappropriate for the Christian. And you're going, where are you going with this, Jim? Well, the first interpretation goes too far. The second one doesn't go far enough, so we'll just call this statement inadequate. Because here's the thing. Paul didn't say we ought to die. He says very matter-of-factly, we died. It's a done deal. Means it doesn't mean you're trying to die. Christian suicide. You know, it's not. It's not that. He says you died. We died. Third, died to sin is 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 wrong or inadequate to say that died to sin means we are slowly moving away from sin. That the sin is weakening in us. Somehow we're gaining dominance over it. And we're going to need to call this one false as well. The word for dead that Paul uses means something much stronger than that. It, it speaks of the ending of what went before and the beginning of what now follows. It's a, it speaks of a decisive moment. And again, this Greek verb is in that aorist tense, which we've talked about a, a few times in, in recent messages. It points to a single, past, one-and-done action with continuing results. So we died to sin, and we that never changes. We keep on being dead to sin. So in this case, Paul is not speaking of a continuous process. Fourth, the fourth statement would be this, that died to sin means that we've renounced sin. That at some moment, such as our baptism or some other occasion, we disavowed sinful behavior. And in itself, this is true, hopefully, for each of us. Hopefully, there have been many times where you've repented and you've said, no more. You may have gone back right into the thing you repented of, but but you renounced sin. You, you said that it, you called it sin. But we're also going to have to call this label, we're going to have to label this false. It's, it's very unlikely that this is what Paul is teaching here. That's why we're calling it false, because that's not where Paul is going. Chapter 6, 3 to 5 explains that this death that he's talking about, we died, is the result of our union with Christ. It's the result of something done to us, not something we have done ourselves. You don't keep crucifying yourself. I saw a picture, a graphic, almost used it on the screen, but I decided against it. But, but it was a picture of a, the hand of Jesus on the cross with the nail through it, but overlaid was the hand of, a, of a, another person. The nail went through both. And, and the picture was we died with him. When, when, we, when he died for us, we, we died with him. Not something done that we do ourselves, but something done to us. Fifth, 
Fifth statement is this, that died to sin means we're no longer guilty of sin. Our sins cannot condemn us if we're pardoned in Christ. I'm going to label this true, but. (laughs) True, but. Again, that probably is not the meaning in this case. Paul Paul needs to explain why. This This is his task. His task is to explain why, given that we're indeed no longer guilty of sin, we choose to live without sin. Why the gospel makes any difference to the way we live. Simply restating the truth that we're pardoned in Christ is not an answer at this point. It's great. It's true. It's the most amazing message in the world, but but it doesn't answer the question that Paul's after here. So what did Paul mean? What did he mean? And the rest of this chapter sets out its meaning in detail, but here it is in a nutshell. What it means is this, that from the moment, from the moment you became a Christian, the moment you transferred your trust from yourself to Christ, you were no longer under the reign or the ruling power of sin. You died. You died. You know, there's a, there's a reason that the genre of music that's referred to as Negro spirituals that were written during the time of American slavery or of slavery of, of blacks in America, the major theme is death, crossing the Jordan River, Beulah Land. All of those stories, all of those songs were preoccupied with death. Why? Because when you're a slave regardless of your color and the color of your skin or the era in history, if you are a slave, your only hope generally of deliverance is to die. And when you die, you're out from under your, your cruel taskmaster. You're, you're out from under your slave master. And that's a picture that, that Paul is painting here. You die to sin and you're, you're no longer a slave to sin. It has no lot more power over you. Tim, Tim Keller offers this really helpful illustration that I think kind of puts it into perspective for me. So follow me in this. He says, if a wicked military force had complete control of a country and a good army then invaded, the good army could throw the wicked force out of power and give the capital city and the the communications, the seat of government back to the people. But the out-of-power soldiers could still live out in the bush. They're out of power, and they're out in the bush. They, as a guerrilla force, could continue to to wreak havoc for the new and rightful government. It, It could impose its will on parts of the country, even though it would never, ever get back into power. And that's what Paul is saying about sin. It's defeated once and for all. Sin keeps wreaking havoc on our lives. We keep submitting to it, but it can never gain full power. We now we died. We're out from under its power, and Christ now reigns. So having died to sin does not mean that sin is no longer within you or that it has no more power or influence with you. It does. We would be liars if we said otherwise. But sin no longer owns you. It can no longer dictate to you, though you may obey it, and, and though you will obey it, the Bible predicts you will, and experience says that you do, the fact remains that you no longer have to obey it. 
You're free not to obey it. You now have a choice. You've died to it. It can be dead to you. How can we, then Paul says, and why would we live in it any longer? And next Paul says that having died, you were buried. You were buried. You had a good funeral. You were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. And in the symbolism of baptism, which we saw a couple of weeks ago, when a person descends into the water and the water closes over his or her head, it's like being buried. When I baptized my own daughter, she fought me. <laughs> As she's going down, she decided she was going to resist. And her head didn't go all the way under. I told her she's going to be headless in heaven. <laughs> Terrible thing, right? Abusive parenting at that point. But when, when in the symbolism of baptism, the water closes over a person's head, it's, it's like being buried. That's the picture. So, someone once said that your baptism is a sort of funeral. Another person said that baptism is a water grave. You're being buried because you died. Emerging from the water then is like rising from the grave. And the symbolism of baptism is then is of dying and rising again. Dying to one kind of life, we, we've, we've risen to another. We, we died to the old life ruled by sin, and we rose to the new life ruled by grace. But notice Paul never mentions water here. Because he's not speaking of water baptism, he's speaking of the spiritual reality that water baptism points us to. Baptism does not by itself secure our salvation. It does not by itself secure what it signifies, what it symbolizes. You can't just add water to a situation and stir. (laughs) Paul spent three chapters arguing and explaining that justification is by faith alone. It would be a radical departure indeed for Paul now to shift gears and declare that salvation is by baptism. When we put our faith in Christ, we're united with him in his death and his resurrection. And then this reality is portrayed symbolically in baptism. Robert Mounts wrote that Christ's death for sin became our death to sin. Christ's death for sin became our death to sin. Sin lies then on the other side of the grave, the the side we left, for those who have in Christ died to it. Next, Paul says, you were then raised to newness of life. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly, see that word? We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. One fruit of our union, one product of our uh, being united with Christ by faith is certainty. And since Christ's death led to a resurrection and a new life, Paul says, so in the same way, our union with him will lead to a new life. If we believe in Christ, a, a radical change will happen in our lives that Paul describes as newness of life. He wrote to the Corinthians and said, if any man... Be in Christ. If anyone be in Christ, he or she is a a new creation. 
old things have passed away, all things have become new. It's a whole new life. So if we're certain that we're, we're united with Christ because his death led to a resurrection and a new life, we can also be certain that we are now living a new life, a life that's no longer under sin's dominance. It has no power over us. He goes on and says, your old self was crucified with Christ. We're going to talk about what that means in just a moment, that phrase, the old self. Verse 6 contains three closely related clauses. It says we're told that something happened in order that something else might happen so that a third thing could happen. We know that our old self was crucified with him, first thing, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, second thing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Our confidence in our resurrected life rests upon the fact that that our old self was nailed to the cross with Jesus. We were crucified with him. So believers, by definition, are those who, by their union with Christ by faith, died with him on the cross. And then Paul says that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that, the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Brought to nothing. That phrase, brought to nothing, translates a Greek word that speaks of being reduced to a condition of absolute powerlessness and ineffectiveness, as if it were dead or out of use. The body of sin was rendered powerless, ineffective, out of use, dead. You know, one of the principles of biblical interpretation is to see how a word is is used in different settings, different places in the Bible. And the word is used here of what Paul calls the body of sin. It's also used in Hebrews 2.14 to speak of Jesus by his death, rendering the devil himself powerless. And since both the devil and the body of sin we know are active and and alive, it cannot here in Romans 6, 6 then mean to eliminate or eradicate. It means instead that our selfish nature has been defeated, it has been disabled, it's been deprived of its power over us. And think about that. Your, all of your predilections towards sin have no power over you anymore. You keep doing them. They have no more power over you because you are in Christ. And he goes on, you no longer live then under the control of sin. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him, nor that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that, this is the third clause, we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So what is that expression, the old self, the old self? It's this. It's the person you were before Christ, before you were in Christ. The person you were in its entirety before you transferred your trust to Jesus, before you died and were buried and were raised in newness of life. It's the old person. And what Paul is saying is that a Christian's old self is gone completely. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. If anyone be in Christ, he's a new creature, new creation. Well, what is this thing called the body of sin that he says was done away with? It's the body that's ruled and controlled by sin. 
Does this mean that the physical body is itself sinful? Some people would draw that conclusion. Or that our basic physical desires are sinful. No. Sin is usually a desire that's being we're seeking to fulfill in an, in an inappropriate way, a twisted way. But sin expresses itself through our bodies. We've got no other vehicle through which to express sin but this body that we're inhabiting. It reigns in us by getting us to obey its dictates. So Paul calls it a body of sin, our body controlled by sin. So here's the essential understanding. A Christian's old self, your old self, is gone completely. The old ego, the old self-understanding, the old stance, the whole, the old worldview, the, the, the posture of your whole person toward God and the world, all that is gone. It died. And you're a new person if you're in Christ. Sin no longer has any power over you. Here's what's true of you if you're a Christian. You're in your inner person. You, you love God. You seek God. You, you love his word. You love his holiness. Sin is still present within you, but it no longer rules and reigns. It no longer has its way completely with you. I now have a choice about where about sin where formerly I had no choice whatsoever. I could do nothing but sin because it ruled me. And now I have a choice because Christ rules me. Sin is still able to lead me to disobey God. But now sinful behavior goes against my new nature and my deepest self-understanding. One of the ways I've expressed that before is that, you know, if you're a Christian, if if, if you're really... If you're really a Christian, you can't even sin well because the enjoyment goes out of it. You go, this is this should be great. Yeah, this would be awesome. It's kind of a bummer. Why is that? Well, when a non-Christian sins, they're acting in accord with their identity, with who they are. Why wouldn't they sin? Sin rules them, controls them. But when someone's united with Christ, everything changes because who they are changes. There's a new person. It's a new you. There's a new me. So when a Christian says, we're, we're acting against our own basic identity. And there's a sense that even though I think this should be fine, it's really not me. It's really not who I am. It really kind of goes against the grain. Why would I sin? So if I sin, it's because I don't realize who I am momentarily. I've, I've missed focus. I've, I've forgotten what's been done for me in Christ. I've forgotten where I stand in Christ, which is grace. And, and Christ was set free. And it's like this, that sin exhausted itself in trying to kill you. <laughs> and when it did, when you died with Christ... From that point forward, it had no more power over you. It was powerless to overcome the new life that now was, was yours in Christ. There's only one way to be set free, my friends. Only one way to be set free from sin. That's what Paul says in verse 7. The actual translation of that phrase, set free, is our good old word justified. Justified. 
There's only one way to be justified from sin. One who has died has been justified from sin. The only way to be justified from sin is that the wage of your sin gets paid. Either by you or by the substitute that God appointed to stand in for you. His name is Jesus. And when he died on the cross, he he paid the wages of your sin. He, He bore your sin in his own body on the cross so that you could be set free from the power of sin. It has no longer has tyranny over you. He is our substitute. One who has died has been set free from sin. Amen? Isn't that good news? I guess you're saying amen because some of this made sense. Our death and resurrection with Christ, Paul says, and he's going to keep saying it in other ways, makes it inconceivable that you and I should go back full tilt to our old way of life. You may have momentary, you know, temporary excursions, (laughs) but you'll never really go back because it's no longer who you are. Let's pray. Lord, each time I come to one of the end, the end of one of these messages, I'm just amazed at your grace all over again. That how full it is, how free it is, how complete it is. All your work, not mine. I had nothing to offer you but this sinful life. And you stood in for me and died in my place, paid the price of my sin, set me free forever from the power that sin had, the total power sin had over me. And today I'm totally set free. Lord, I pray for those uh, who are here today that uh, have heard this message who may not have yet experienced that freedom that comes from, from what you accomplished for them at the cross. And Lord, I pray that today they would just simply reach out and say, Lord, I don't know, maybe you understand all this, but I do know that I'm a sinner and I know that I need to be saved from my sin and the power of my sin. So God, would you include me in what Christ accomplished? Include me in, in the family of God as I trust in Jesus, in Jesus alone for my salvation. Lord, let that be the prayer of many here today. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.